0: This is Passport to Everywhere. An incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your Passport to Everywhere.
1: Chris Blackwell is perhaps best known as the founder of Island Records and the man responsible for bringing Bob Marley into the mainstream. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dubbed him the single person most responsible for turning the world on to reggae music. But he also launched the careers of Steve Winwood, U2, Grace Jones, and many others. But you may be surprised to learn that he's also an innovative hotelier, owning some of Jamaica's most iconic properties and along the way, spurring the revival of Miami's South Beach. Born in London to a Jamaican heiress, Chris spent his childhood in Jamaica. He briefly left to attend school in England, but returned to the island as soon as he could, working odd jobs until he heard an ensemble led by blind pianist Lance Hayward at the Half Moon Hotel in Montego Bay. This was the moment that inspired him to found Island Records, and from then on, he dedicated his life to celebrating Jamaica, first through music, and now through tourism. After popularizing Jamaica's traditional ska and reggae music through island records in the latter half of the 20th century, he went on to found Island Outposts, a collection of luxury hotels and villas that also showcases the nation's rich culture and warm hospitality. Each of his boutique properties have their own unique charm. Strawberry Hill sits 3,000 feet above the Caribbean Sea in Jamaica's Blue Mountains. The Caves has a plethora of coral stairways, grottos, and as its name might suggest, caves to explore. And Indigari's favorite, Goldeneye, is the spot where Ian Fleming, who was the longtime lover of Blackwell's mother, wrote all of the 14 James Bond novels. When Chris acquired Goldeneye in 1976, it was only one main house with three cottages— Since then, Chris has grown it into a secluded 52-acre collection of private villas and cottages, or what he calls huts, amidst white sand beaches, tropical gardens, and a seawater lagoon. Steve Jobs celebrated his 29th birthday there, and Sting wrote Every Breath You Take at GoldenEye. All of the properties share a laid-back and friendly rhythm, reminiscent of reggae music and authentic Jamaican hospitality. During COVID, Chris worked on his recently released autobiography, The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond, and I'm thrilled to have him with me today on another installment of our legendary hotel series to discuss his robust career spanning music and hospitality and what ties all of his endeavors together, his love for Jamaica. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, we'll explore Jamaica with Chris Blackwell, And stay tuned because after, I'll be answering your Caribbean travel questions.
0: Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. The international adventure
1: continues. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm okay. I spent a wonderful weekend reading your autobiography oh congratulations it was wonderful it was a really wonderful read
2: thank you
1: so i would love to start chris by talking to you about from the beginning growing up in jamaica in the 1940s and 50s can you describe a little bit your childhood or sort of your most important memories of that period of your life and how that island shaped who you are
2: I was born in the middle of the sort of west end of London. And then my mother and father took me back by boat to uh, Jamaica. My mother's father, his brother, gave my mother a house. It was a wedding gift. It was a, a lovely house. It was called Terra Nova. It still exists in Jamaica. It's now a hotel. And so I grew up in this house. I lived there basically all the time. I hardly ever left the house. You know, I was not well as a child. I had very bad asthma. And so most of the time I was just not well, but I wasn't sort of suffering. The result was that I grew up in this house and um, there was a huge staff of people there because of the house being big and the land being big around it. There were a lot of gardeners. There was enough land where you could ride horses. There were grooms. There were probably about 15 or 20 people who worked at the house. And those are the people that I got to know best, other than my mother, my father, and my grandmother. So most of the time I spent with the staff of that house. And I became very close with them. I used to go and sit with them when they were eating their lunch or dinner and things like that. I just sort of kind of hang around. I was probably a bit of a nuisance to them in a way, but they never treated me as a nuisance. They would sort of tell jokes or, you know, be somewhat entertaining in things. And I grew very much a great love for those people because they were the people with whom I spent most of my time growing up. Now, this is five to six years. This is the first six years I'm describing, really. Well, I'm sure, you know, a great deal of how I see life and um, how I kind of sort of became involved was because I really cared for the people who actually were staff working. I saw no, no other people. I know Fancy lunches, no fancy Christmas parties, birthday parties, nothing at all because of the asthma. And um, I was never at all miserable about it. I was never wishing I could go to a party or something. I I was very much at home in in the house with the staff.
1: So it must've been very disorienting to be sent to school in England, to go from the tropics to England Go from not being around other people to all of a sudden being in a school with with lots of other children.
2: Well, they sent me to, it was a school near uh, Windsor, uh, Windsor in England, basically on the river. And it's just about the worst thing you could do if you have asthma is to be close to a damp river and things like that. That is the worst period that I can think of. I didn't get on with the priests Um, They didn't get on with me. They, I think, were happy to get rid of me. So I went back to Jamaica because I was not well there in in England. And I was in Jamaica for another couple of years. They got me into this posh school, which was called Harrow, um, which is, you know, one of the two best schools in in London.
1: So in your autobiography... Chris, yeah. you tell a wonderful story about how you met your first Rastafarian. And though you'd been raised to be afraid of these people that you didn't know, particularly this, this sort of a Rastafarian at that point, what people assumed they were, but he helped rescue you and your friends. Can you share that story and, and what it means to you? One day I went out
2: on a, a boat. This is now about 17 or 16. And I took two people with me, an English guy who was in Jamaica working with the Jamaican regiment and a Jamaican young lady. And I realized that I'd run out of gas. I was out at sea and went towards the land. And then the last bit of it, one had to sort of get out of the boat and pull it in onto the beach. I said, well, the only thing I think we should do, is we need to just maybe lie on the beach as it was pretty much dark by then. And I'll get up early in the morning and I'll walk along the coastline. So I walked and walked and walked. Eventually I came through into a little beach, but I was still really desperately thirsty. And then there was a hut and I saw a hut and I called out. And a guy put his head through the window, And that was very scary because at that time, people of the Rastafarian religion were treated very unfairly. The government gave them a bad time. The people gave them a bad time. it was something where you you were sort of told you don't want to go near there because they kill you and things like that. And when this guy put his head through the window, I, I was scared. But I was desperately thirsty. And I asked him, do you have any water? He walked down and he had a little bowl of water and he was just so gentle and kind and everything. It was just totally the opposite of what I thought. I, I, I was terrified when I saw him there and here was this person who would just come down and the way I felt about it was save my life to the degree that I felt confident enough to ask him could I just come up and lie down in his hut just for a little bit? And he said, yes. And I fell asleep and I slept for about three hours. And when I woke up, there were four or five Rastafarians sitting around all with their Bible. I found that the people were different, how kind the people were. From then on, you know, I was very supportive and very keen on and very wanting to help.
1: Yeah, and it clearly allowed you to have a kind of a relationship with Jamaica and also with the musicians later, with people like Bob Marley, to be able to understand that music and bring it to a wider audience. Yeah. And so how did you ultimately decide, Chris, to pivot from music and then end up in the hotel industry?
2: I guess it would be, this would have been about 1979, so I'm a lot older by then. <laughs> i went down to miami i checked into a big hotel but i didn't like the hotel didn't like the hotel at all i just didn't didn't like the feel of it so i got out and drove south i started to notice that everything was very derelict and the only thing you saw was pretty much was older people everything was just very dull And also it was a time where people didn't want to go to Miami Beach because it was just around the time when um, Castro sent a whole lot of people he had in his own prison over to Florida. It it was not a happening area there.
1: The days of Miami Vice.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's right. And um, I thought to myself, this place is amazing. The beach is amazing. And they had some little houses and little buildings. And there was one which I thought, well, I could make that into a hotel. I don't know why I thought of that. I spent, because I spent a lot of time. I mean, you know, if you're growing up in a place, they have lots of hotels and things like that. You kind of are aware of them and you're looking at them and you're judging them and you're thinking about them, etc. I saw this one place and um, I thought I'd buy it.
1: Was that The Tides?
2: No, The Tides was the last one. The first one I bought was called The Marlin. It was a dump, by the way. I liked the feel of it for some reason. I don't know why, but it was a dump. And there was a woman there, Barbara Hulenicki, but I thought it couldn't be Barbara Hulenicki because Barbara Hulenicki is, you know, is a sort of superstar in England with the shops that she had. And she came in and she fixed it up and she made The Marlin, the hotel in South Beach for a year or so and that because soon after lots of other hotels came up, but it definitely started it off. I just love the hotel. From there I sort of drifted somewhat into the hotel business.
1: And you no, know, I stayed at the tides in the colony and then all of those wonderful hotels really? that you had. Mm-hmm. Yes. And exactly I remember as you did when, when Miami Beach was a dump and then It had this really sexy moment where it was models and and rockers and movie shoots and and fashion shoots with the old, when it was starting to kind of the art deco and the pastel colors. And now it's obviously something else entirely, but it was a very exciting moment. But then you took this to Jamaica. So GoldenEye was Ian Fleming's former house where he wrote all of the James Bond books. Can you talk about what your relationship to Fleming was and if you remember the first time you went to that property?
2: Yes, I went to it because my uncle had found him the house and uh, Ian Fleming really liked it. So he bought it. I think he called it GoldenEye from the time he bought it. My mum lived four or five miles away. They became friends. And also another reason was because Noel Coward had come to Jamaica and bought a house from my uncle. My mother became very good friends with Noel Coward, who was just the most unbelievable man. I mean, he was such an entertaining human being. I mean, he was absolutely amazing. And then he and Ian Fleming connected, of course, though he didn't like Ian Fleming's house at all. He called it Golden Eye, Nose and Throat. (laughs) That's what he called it.
1: And so how did you end up acquiring Goldeneye?
2: I acquired it because when Ian Fleming died, the house was being kept for his son to inherit. And my mother, she was looking after the house, basically. Sadly, what happened is Ian Fleming's son died. And so it came on the market. My mother asked if I would try and buy it for her because she she loved the house and she was very close with Ian Fleming. I was a little short of cash at the time, but the person who could do it was Bob Marley because I just paid him a fat royalty check. (laughs) So I knew he could afford it, and I told him that he should go and have a look at it. I wasn't sure that he'd like it or not, and that was about it. I kind of forgot about it. And I think he's kind of forgot about it. But the person who didn't forget about it was the person who was in charge of selling the house. After waiting for about six months and nobody really coming and buying it, he called me and said, well, look, you know, we've got to get this done right away. So I said, "Okay, well, give me just two or three days. So then I rang Bob again and Bob had never gone to see the house. So he went to see it and he said it wasn't for him. You know, it was too posh. I said, well, I can buy the house now. I can buy it now because my finances had recovered a bit. And so I was able to buy it.
1: Amazing. And then how did you end up with the other two properties in Jamaica, Strawberry Hill and the Caves?
2: Strawberry Hill, I had bought early on. I was mostly in England to try and expand the Jamaican music. I got very lucky because I, I brought over a girl and she sang a song And the song sold millions. That sort of gave me some credibility, as it were. That was
1: Millie, right?
2: That was Millie, yeah. I sort of found my thing, running a a record label, because I I love music. I love the musicians. I, I love the whole process. I love going in the studio.
1: But you kept going back to Jamaica at intervals?
2: Yes. The first hit I had was Millie who was Jamaican, who I'd brought over from Jamaica. But then after that, there was a band called Spencer Davis Group. They morphed into a band called Traffic. The lead guitarist was the lead singer, was the lead keyboard player, was the lead organ player. And he was like 16 or 17, something like that. It was just unbelievable.
1: And that was Steve Winwood, who you discovered.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Amazing. So then, were you able to buy Strawberry Hill after you had founded Island Records? Yes. But you bought that as a, both that and GoldenEye as personal houses for yourself originally and then turned them into hotels, correct? Yes. And since they're all different, who should stay at GoldenEye versus who should stay at Strawberry Hill?
2: I think they're all worth staying at and visiting. You know, if you're somebody who really loves to swim a lot, Strawberry Hill is not the place because that's 3,000 feet up in the mountains. So that's not a place to go to swim. It's a place to, to go just to cool out and, and go for walks and um, have incredibly beautiful views.
1: Goldeneye is more of a beach person or someone who wants to be on the sea.
2: Well, that's how it was. That's how Ian Fleming had it. He lived for it. You know, he'd wake up and then go for a swim. And then he'd come back and he'd have breakfast Then he'd go back and, you know, do some writing. Then he'd go back and have a swim and then he'd have lunch. He absolutely loved the water. He loved the reef. In front of uh, Goldeneye, there's a great reef, I mean, where it goes very deep. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful swamp.
1: And you added all sorts of different buildings over the years and lots of different houses and villas so people can have their own space when they're at GoldenEye. But I remember at one point you thought when you were developing it that you might make it into sort of an Ian Fleming, James Bond themed hotel and then decided not to do that and decided to have it evolve into something that is more Probably a reflection of its history, but also of your times that you spent with musicians there. Is that right?
2: That's right. Except um, in Jamaica, I spent time with musicians in Jamaica. I didn't spend time with musicians at GoldenEye so much because there was no recording studio there. The recording studios were in Kingston, Jamaica at that time.
1: How would you describe the sort of idea behind GoldenEye as you set out to create the resort? What was your goal for it? I
2: wanted it to be a place that uh, was not fancy. I wanted it so it was. It had a mixed feeling to it. You know, the main thing at GoldenEye is the Fleming Villa. That's where Fleming built his house. That's where he lived. So that house is really the main house at GoldenEye. So I had built there with different houses, small houses, you know, on the beach. And what I did was I put um, 20 of them up for sale. So that's really how I started the GoldenEye Hotel in a way. So financing of it was me building the houses and then, but then when people bought the house, I recovered my finance and we could build more. And then I wanted to change it a little bit and have a a different feel, something which was, I didn't want it to be at all like regular hotels. I wanted it to be different and feel different and different people coming and going and things like that. So I decided to build huts. And, you know, I was advised that that was a very stupid idea, that if you're already building houses, I decided anyhow, I'd go ahead and build 30 huts. I love the feel of it. It's kind of primal. It's octagonal. There's something magic about it. So 30 buildings I did were all of them are exactly the same design. Everybody gave me a hard time. So you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. You know, hotels go by status and sort of things. It's worked out really well. People love the huts.
1: (laughs) And do you have a favorite one or a favorite spot? Because I know there's lots of secret coves and private beaches. And is there a place on the property that's your favorite?
2: Yeah, I have a hut. I've been living there since 1995.
1: (laughs) And can you tell me about the Golden Knife Foundation and how that started and, and what its mission is?
2: I wanted to try and get something where one could start something where the people could get employment at Goldeneye, and get them involved in the community and the first thing I did was give the rights to the fishermen and then, in other things, we had something set up where the staff would go and help clean up some of the streets, some of the areas, not just around where we are, but in the little village itself it's not It's not a big town, it's a small town. It's bigger than a village, but it's a small little town. And um, we did that in a way where the staff would go and do that. They would still be paid doing that. And um, people who lived in the town would would notice and recognize that we have interest in them, not just ourselves.
1: Yeah, no, that's so important. And I know you've made a lot of progress in the community. So, in Goldeneye and Strawberry Hill, both their incarnations as your homes and also as resorts, you've had a lot of guests over the years come and spend time with you. Are there any stories or memories about times at Goldeneye or Strawberry Hill that really stand out for you? I remember reading that Sting wrote "Every Breath You Take" at Goldeneye. eye
2: You right. did indeed. Well, Bono came for their their birthday, Bono and Annie. After he was married in in Ireland, they flew to GoldenEye and stayed at GoldenEye for a bit. And I think they went a bit around Jamaica and discovered Jamaica.
1: Oh, wow. And I remember reading in your book, you said that you never traveled with luggage. In all the years that you traveled hundreds of thousands of miles, I have to ask, how did you do that, not having luggage? Did you just travel from one home of your own to the other or ship things?
2: Well, I wouldn't describe myself as being a well dressed gentleman. <laughs> so I would just carry what I, what I need. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you also said in the book that the best moments are the ones that lead to change, even if change sometimes takes time. How do you think you've changed people's perceptions and experience of Jamaica?
2: Well, I, I love the place, I believe in the people. Jamaica has made me whatever I may be all my time. That first five years was Jamaican.
1: And I know in the book you talk a bit about the role of luck in life. And there's one point where you even mentioned that you consulted a card reader when you were deciding between pursuing a career in film or in music. But ultimately, what are the lessons? And you've spent a lot of time reviewing your life to do The Islander. What do you think the, the lessons are that were the key to success in your life?
2: Listening to people, listening to people of all walks of life, not just teaching, but just listening to people and communicating with people. I think that I have no education. As a, I, you know, I have not passed one exam in my life. It's not something that I'm proud of, but it is something that is the case. So I've sort of lived very much on my instinct and on my feel for people. I don't know how or why, or, but that's just been it. I'm just interested in people.
1: You've had a remarkable life and thank you for sharing the things that you love from music to beautiful locations and hotels and the warmth of the people that you've gotten to meet. It's been really a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you. All right. All the best.
1: Thank you to Chris for joining us today to speak about how he brought Jamaican reggae music to the world through Island Records and is now bringing travelers to Jamaica via Island Outposts, beautiful hotels, and villas. Stay tuned, because I'm about to start answering some of your Caribbean travel questions.
0: Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. The journey, You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley.
1: So this week, we have our Global Experience Director, Katherine Nathanson from Indigari, joining me for another session of Ask Melissa, in which we're focusing on the Caribbean.
3: Melissa, thanks for having me this week. I'm excited to talk all things Caribbean, especially as it has started to get quite cold here in New York.
1: I am, too. Sadly, you know, Catherine, we're going to talk about all these islands and we're going to wish we were under a palm tree, but maybe that will inspire us to
3: get a plane ticket and go. I know. As we've said in past episodes, both of us really need to focus on the relaxation style vacations, which the Caribbean certainly offers.
1: It does. It is a very good place to relax and recharge.
3: Inspired by Melissa's conversation with Chris Blackwell on Jamaica and with it being high season for Travel to the Caribbean, we've pulled together some of our listeners' questions with some of the most frequently asked Caribbean questions at Indigari on Ask Melissa Today. So let's start with some context. Melissa, do you remember the first time you went to the Caribbean?
1: Yes. I think I was probably eight or nine years old, and I remember we went for Christmas to a resort in Antigua that still exists called Curtain Bluff. My grandmother took my siblings and father and cousins and aunts and uncles. And we did a multi-generational Caribbean Christmas there. And I remember it was the first time I ever had baked Alaska. So maybe I was only even like seven or eight. That was like the most impactful part of the whole vacation in a way was this like incredible dessert. And then being on the beach every day and seeing the sailboats, which I was not allowed on. But yeah, no, I, so that was my first experience was definitely, it was Antigua when I was pretty young.
3: And it's likely impossible for you to fully count this, but do you know how many times you visited the Caribbean?
1: Oh gosh, it's probably in the thirties, 30, 35, 40 times or so. Cause I, you know, when I was the travel editor at Town & Country, I sometimes went multiple times a year. And with my kids for many years, we probably went at least once or twice every year. So yes, I've been many, many times.
3: And to piggyback off that, about how many Caribbean islands have you been to?
1: There's a company called the Traveler's Century Club. It's actually not a company, it's a club. And they have a list of countries and territories around the world. In their count of the Caribbean, they count 31 islands and territories. And out of those, I've been to 17 of the 31. But if you count individual islands, which they don't do, like Mustique, which is part of the Grenadines, or Tortola and Virgin Gorda as part of the BVI, it's probably closer to 25 or 30.
3: Okay. And now getting into traveler questions. There are so many here. Let's start with, we've got kind of a lightning round going. What is your favorite Caribbean island for shopping?
1: For shopping, uh, it would have to be St. Bart's because they just have the the most number of really cool stores um, of any Caribbean island that I know. And there are certain places I love. Le 20, the resort, has always had an amazing boutique in their hotel. And They've had it when they used to be where Cheval Blanc is now. They sold that, hood, the original Ile de France was what it was called, the owners to Cheval Blanc. And now the owner, the former owners of Ile de France have a hotel called Le 20, the woman who is the owner who's always run the boutique, and she's just got the best eye. So I love her store. It's probably my favorite beach store anywhere. And then there's great little boutiques in Saint-Jean and Gustavia that have really fun French and and sort of different tropical influenced clothes from India and from Africa that are just fantastic. So I love shopping on St. Barts.
3: And you know, I always love to hear about restaurants. So this next listener wrote in, I'm a foodie and don't want to eat at the same resort restaurant every night. What are your favorite islands for dining?
1: Well, St. Barts is another one that has a lot of restaurants that are outside of hotels, and it has kind of a culture for a lot of people to eat off property. So there are many good restaurants in St. Barts. Jean-Georges has one. There are lots of smaller, funky places. Sadly, one of my favorites, Maya's, closed last year. But I would say St. Barts would be one. And then the neighboring island to St. Barts, Anguilla, is another island that uh, has a lot of Great restaurants within their hotels that are easy to get to, but they also have some individual restaurants that are really good. Dining at Belmont's Chips for dinner or Four Seasons Half Shell Beach Bar for lunch. The Sunset Lounge is great at the Four Seasons on Anguilla, but they don't take reservations. And then they have off-property restaurants that have been around forever that are fantastic, like Blanchards and Mangoes, that you really need to have a reservation booked out in advance. And then they have little beach shacks. One's literally called Blanchard's Beach Shack that's great for lunch on the beach. And so I think those would be two of my favorites. And then also Barbados has a great dining culture off property as well. So I love those those islands where you can eat in the hotels, but also at, at freestanding restaurants.
3: So our next listener is wondering about your favorite Caribbean islands for young families. And then let's also go into your favorite for teens. Are those different?
1: Okay, so from my own experience, yes, they're very different. Um, The things that were most important to me when my kids were really little was a direct flight. And so we did some early vacations. So I would say a direct flight and also a really good sandy beach with not a big current or tide. So Jamaica, we had great vacations on Jamaica and in the Bahamas. And in Turks and Caicos, because they have, you know, the pink sand beach in, on Harbor Island was a great one with little kids. That's not a direct flight, but, um, but certainly Jamaica was one and Barbados is another that were direct flights with great beaches for young kids and great houses that you could rent. So you could, you know, get up early in the morning and have a kitchen. Those were things that were really important to me with really little kids. And then as my kids got a little bit older, one of their favorite vacations probably was going to Atlantis on Nassau, where we could swim with the dolphins and do all those great rides. That's sort of, to me, is a little bit one of those rites of passage, sort of like going to Disney World uh, with kids, but for Caribbean, certainly Atlantis. And then my son, was it was a spring break spot. But then in the teen years, I think you want a, a place where the kids can be safe and spend time with kids their own age, but have a little bit more action. So We spent a lot of Christmas vacations or holiday vacations going to the Dominican Republic and Harbor Island. We would go to a place called Casa de Campo in the Dominican Republic, which is a big resort with hundreds of houses, but lots of activities for teens, and they can go around on bikes or golf carts. And so there's a sense of freedom. Similarly, in Harbor Island, it's the same kind of vibe where uh, the kids have a lot of freedom and a lot of other activities um, and a lot of, most importantly, of their peers to hang out with. And the other thing that I would say is, again, little kids, kids clubs. So hotels that have activities for really young kids, I think, are a, a great relief for parents so you get some vacation. So I think that would be another criteria, direct flights and kids clubs at hotels. And, and we at Indigari have a whole list of exactly which of those resorts you can think about.
3: So this listener just wrote in, what do you recommend if I only have a long weekend to visit the Caribbean? Which are islands that have direct flights?
1: Well, off the top of my head, some of the places with direct flights from the Northeast, because obviously from LA, you're not going to get direct flights into the Caribbean at all, but that's probably not where you're going for a long weekend. I'm going to think East Coast, some of the larger islands like Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Barbados, Antigua they all have direct flights pretty much daily. But we have a list if you even if you just go on Google, you can search Indigare, Caribbean Island with direct flights. And we've got an article that lists all of them from airports, including Miami, Philadelphia, DC, New York, Boston, that's updated regularly. So that will give you a better idea. But certainly, I would recommend for a long weekend, a direct flight.
3: And this is a great and very timely question we got. I don't want to risk bad weather over the holidays. What's your advice for great weather at Christmas?
1: Well, one thing that I would say is just use your geography. And the closer you get to the equator, the more likely you're going to have really warm weather. And so Barbados, for instance, is really far south. Other islands like the Grenadines, Granada, Canawan, uh, which is a a small island that has a great Mandarin Oriental hotel at it, Mustique, St. Vincent, those are all really far south. And so they tend to have great weather. Again, if you go use the corollary and you think about the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos, unfortunately, those are much further north than the rest of the Caribbean islands. And so they often can be quite chilly still. At Christmas. So I would say use geography.
3: All right. Next, I have for you I don't just want to sit on a beach. What islands have a more cultural side or active side? This listener is not looking for a flop and drop resort. In terms
1: of really great culture, the island that has the most interesting culture and diversity in many ways is one of the largest ones, and that's Cuba. And we used to do a lot of trips to Cuba to Havana, there's amazing arts and architecture and and food scene and music scene in Havana. Cartagena is not an island in the Caribbean, but it's a city on the coast of Colombia on the Caribbean Sea. And that too has a really great cultural scene. Uh, In many ways, I've described that in the past as sort of like New Orleans on the Caribbean Sea, a tropical New Orleans because it isn't about a flop and drop beach vacation. And in fact, if you go to Cuba or Cartagena looking for a beach, you're probably going to be disappointed. If you want something that's a little bit more of a mix, I mean, frankly, we've just been talking about Jamaica. There's a great culture in Jamaica from all of the history of, of being, you know, different trade routes and, and influences there and, and great music. But in terms of seeing sites there's Alexander Hamilton's house on the island of Nevis I've been to. There's a little bit of culture there. And that's actually a great island for hiking. If you go hiking in Nevis, you can see some wild monkeys. And for hiking, there's great hiking in St. John or on St. Barts uh, or in St. Lucia. If you want, those islands are really good for, for being more active. I think that's probably... What I would suggest from my own personal experience, you know, for true culture and not at all beach, Cuba and Cartagena.
3: Okay. A couple listeners are wondering about golf and spa islands. What are your favorites for golf? And then let's talk through spa. Okay.
1: Well, I am not a golfer, but I certainly know which islands have good golf courses. And there are not a ton of them, but the best golf courses are concentrated on Barbados. There's a couple around Sandy Lane and outside of Sandy Lane at the Fairmont. The Dominican Republic has a concentration of a lot of great golf courses. It's probably one of the most renowned islands. Um, at Casa de Campo, they have two, if not three, 18-hole courses. And Amanera, the Aman on the Dominican Republic, also has an 18-hole golf course. Jamaica is another one. There's um, golf courses at Trial. There's uh, golf courses, I believe, at Half Moon Bay. There's at least two or three great golf courses on Jamaica. So I would say those three islands are probably the best known. Nassau in the Bahamas also has some 18 hole golf courses that travelers can get onto, but I would say those are probably the best ones. And then for spas, The Caribbean doesn't really have any dedicated spas like a Miraval or a Miyamo or a Canyon Ranch type spa. Really, they're more dedicated at the resorts. And so some resorts that have done a really good job integrating the spa experience into the resort experience, probably the top of my list would be Como Parrot Key, which has even an amazing spa menu, um, great yoga pavilion, really good spa program. Then another one I would say is Guanahani, which is now a rosewood on St. Bart's, similarly has a, a dedicated spa area that's very sophisticated, and you can really make a holiday out of a stay there. Amanyara on the Turks and Caicos is another one. You know, maybe you want to think about going to Mexico, flying into Cancun, and considering some of the places on the Yucatan Peninsula, like the Chablis, which is a dedicated spa experience.
3: And now we've got two questions around a more private Caribbean experience. So, this person is wondering about chartering a boat, specifically a sailboat. What are your favorite Caribbean islands for boating?
1: Definitely my favorite group of islands for boating would be the Virgin Islands. And the reason for that is you can sail pretty short distances to very different types of islands. And so, you can have a great experience. Fly into St. Thomas. And pick up a boat and you can sail to St. John, but then go even into the British Virgin Islands, which are very different in feeling. And they're not that far apart. I mean, you can even do a day boat trip from St. John over to Tortola or Virgin Gorda. But there are lots of small bays and smaller islands to explore. So um, not only do you have a really easy sailing experience, but you have a lot of variety without traveling huge distances. So I think the, the Virgin Islands are definitely the best area to actually sail in. Similarly, you can be in, in St. Bart's and go over to Anguilla, but the seas are much rougher over there than they are compared to what they are in the Virgin Islands. So I would definitely say the Virgin Islands. And then, as I mentioned, you can sail around St. Martin's, St. Bart's, and Anguilla area though they can have an awful lot of winds. And then the Grenadines are another great area. And then, of course, the Bahamas in the right time of year, more, you know, really April through June. And and you don't want to get into hurricane season, which starts in August. But there's gorgeous sailing around the Bahamas.
3: Okay, and now we have best islands for renting a house. And then we have somebody wondering about your favorite private islands. Maybe they're the same. So
1: best islands for renting a house, I would say, are the ones that have a lot of great house rentals and the infrastructure for it. So the Virgin Islands have quite a few good house rentals. St. Bart's certainly has a lot. Jamaica has a lot. Barbados has a great infrastructure of house rentals. And so does the Turks and Caicos. So those would probably be my top islands for renting a house. And I've rented houses in Barbados and Jamaica and St. Bart's and the Virgin Islands. And all of those areas have great infrastructure in terms of having it set up so that you can, it's easy to get a a housekeeper for a week. It's easy to get food dropped off at the property so you don't have to arrive with no groceries. But there are lots of good grocery stores on those islands so you can cook or you can go out to dinner. So I think those are, are good ones. In terms of private islands, I've been super lucky to go to quite a few of them. Uh, I got to interview Richard Branson years ago on Necker Island and and visit him there, which was pretty fantastic. And that's a a great island where you can go either take over the whole thing or a couple times a year, he has what they call celebration reeks where you can just rent a room in one of the houses on the island. And, And sometimes actually, Richard Branson's even there. We, years ago, we had a staff member at Indigari who was there. And there was some kind of hurricane or weather reason that she was delayed. And Richard Branson was there. And she mentioned at dinner that she and her fiancé were going to get married at some point. They just hadn't figured out when. And he said, well, why don't we do it tomorrow? I'm an officiant and I can marry you. And sure enough, a staff member lent her a white dress and Richard Branson married her totally impromptu. So that's a really fun one. Kanawana Island, I think I mentioned earlier, is in the Grenadines. And that is an island that has one really one big resort on it. That's another good one. Oh gosh, and I forgot to mention Mustique as a house rental island. That's another great one with really fabulous houses to rent and a great infrastructure. There's another wonderful little known island called Guana Island, which is owned by a family, and they have you can take it over for a group of friends or you can rent rooms there. And it, it almost it's in the British Virgin Islands and it has lots of beautiful little whitewashed houses on it. Um, It's very simple, but wonderful.
3: Wow, you are really making me crave a trip to the Caribbean right now. As I said, here cold in New York uh, with winter very much approaching. So this next question we have, shifting gears, somebody wrote in, my daughter wants to get married in the Caribbean. Do you have suggestions for a destination wedding?
1: Yes, I've actually been lucky to attend a couple. And, um, but I, and I go back to sort of the same criteria that when I was mentioning islands that are great for renting houses are ones that have the infrastructure. They're, you're not inventing the wheel. There are a number of islands where they have a lot of weddings, and that means they have the infrastructure and the know-how how to do it. Barbados is one. And they also have a lot of different places for guests to stay at different price points. Uh, Harbor Island is another one in the Bahamas, which is a great one for weddings, Jamaica, similarly, and St. Barts and Anguilla. All five of those islands are very popular with brides. They have a good infrastructure. They've got, you know, multiple venues for different events and different types of uh, and styles of accommodations from private houses to hotels to house a, a real range of wedding guests in. And they're, you know, relatively small areas where you can move around or, or, you know, areas, whether it's in Jamaica or Barbados, where you can choose a region and stick to. So I think all those are, are good islands to investigate for weddings.
3: And we've got a perfect final question for you here. This listener emailed in, what islands have you not been to and want to go to and why?
1: Well, there's actually there's a lot of islands I still haven't been to. Um, I'd love to go to Martinique or Guadeloupe. I have not been to either of those. And I have never been to Puerto Rico, uh, which is kind of shocking. I've been to the airport, but I've never been out of the airport in Puerto Rico, and I'd love to go there as well. So there's lots of islands that, uh, that I'd still like to go to.
3: Wow, Puerto Rico, that is a surprising one. You'll have to go. Well, thank you, Melissa, for another incredible session of Ask Melissa. I've learned a ton, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Thank
1: you, Catherine. It's been fun, and and I hope uh, educational for people. And if you've got more questions, if I didn't answer something, and you still have a question on the Caribbean, send us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com, or you can DM me at Indigari Founder on Instagram, or call our line and, and leave a question, and we'd be happy to answer it in an upcoming episode.
3: All right, thanks, and see you all next
1: week. Thank you for tuning in to Passport to Everywhere this week. Huge thank you to Chris Blackwell for joining us today. To learn more about the Island Outposts collection, visit islandoutposts.com and follow the collection on Instagram at Island outpost. Coming up on the show, I'll be speaking with conservationists and filmmakers Beverly and Derek Joubert, as well as Jessica Nabongo, author, travel expert, and the first Black woman to visit all 195 countries in the world. Plus, Patricia Schultz, author of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die and her new book, Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World, to talk all things bucket list travel. And Dr. Tanya Matthews, the CEO of the new International African American Museum, opening in Charleston, South Carolina. In the meantime, please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297. Or send us a note on Instagram at Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Until next time, I'm Melissa Biggs-Bradley, and this is Passport to Everywhere.
0: The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms. And anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram. At at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646 535 7297. This has been Passport to everywhere. Everywhere.